Acts 19. Dave was just going through and he was very close to there. Verse 1. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So there's this group of 12 people in Ephesus, and Paul shows up and gives them a personal Bible study, ministers to them, prays for them. They get epied. The Holy Spirit came upon them. In verse 8, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, the multitude, before the multitude he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he started out with 12, then he goes into the synagogue, and now he's in this school of Tyrannus, where he's spent... Uh, two years. So originally, as Rob mentioned this morning, that they were called Christians first in Antioch. Before that, they were called the way. And it's basically the same thing. Christian was actually started out as a derogatory term. Oh, you're one of his, because they didn't like him. Um, But they were the way, the way Jesus lived, the way Jesus acted, the way that they were supposed to walk. There was this path that you're supposed to follow. So it was actually taken for granted that if you followed Jesus, you were living a certain way. And they were actually called the way, the way we live. And hopefully that will fester as we go on tonight, this way. And it says in verse 10, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greek. All who dwelt in Asia. And Asia here is not the Asia we think about, which... I started Colossians, which is where we're heading to, if you want to turn to Colossians 1. According to Strong's, Asia, um, it's called Asia proper or proconsular Asia, embracing Mysia, Lydia, Phrygia, and Korea, and it corresponds closely today to where we, about where Turkey is. So, Colossians was in Asia, which is around where Turkey is. And if you were to read Revelation uh, 1, in verse 4, he says, write to the churches in Asia. And then he also says in verse 11, um, specifically names them Ephesus, which is where he was here, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. So those are the larger churches that were specifically mentioned. Colossus was not mentioned there um, Neither were a few other smaller ones, but Laodicea was a larger. So Colossus was a small town. Uh, first century, it had been bigger. It was on a trade route through the Lycus Valley by the river. And after Hierapolis, which is about 15, 20 miles away, and uh, Ephesus, which is about 10 miles away, once they came in and got larger, it, it kind of lost its significance, and it was a very small and uh, two months ago, I think, when I first started, and I did an introduction to this, um, I had mentioned it was like this year. This is about written in 60 AD, we believe, and, and there was a uh, very large earthquake in 61 that kind of destroyed the city. So hopefully these people took heed, maybe why this wasn't mentioned in Revelation, because by then it was really non-existent. It was pretty much not heard of after that. And the church was probably founded by Paul's disciple Epaphras. So Epaphras is, we're going to read his name often. He was the leader, we believe, in the church at Ephesus. And they met in Philemon's house. 
maybe other places, because sometimes they met daily, or they would meet in different places, and Philemon sounds familiar, I'm sure you're all biblical scholars, there's a book of the Bible named after him. <laughs> um, he was evidently wealthier, and he had a slave, Onesimus, who we are going to read, was one of the ones that actually delivered this letter. So uh, Paul had never been in Colossae in person. He's mentioned a couple times in this book that to those that he never saw face-to-face, he hoped to see. And uh, Epaphras had visited Paul in jail in Rome. We believe it was somewhere around 60 AD where Epaphras had evidently told him the state of the church. And he ended up responding to Epaphras' concerns with this letter. And we know that Paul wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, um, all while in jail. So as you read those, again, that and uh, Philippi are considered the prison epistles. And he sent um, Philemon to Asia with, uh, I'm sorry, he sent Tychicus, who in Ephesians it mentions was, um, he traveled with Paul and he was a beloved brother and faithful minister, and Onesimus, who was Philemon's converted escaped slave, back to Ephesus and then to Colossae, and then he also said to take them to Laodicea. So just a, a note, not that we're going through Philemon, but that must have been an awkward reunion. So Onesimus ends up leaving which I guess if you were enslaved, Paul says it's okay to desire to be free, but do also in the Lord. But he ended up getting saved under the ministry of Paul, and he was going to go back and have to face um, Philemon. And Paul ends up sending these letters with a trusted person. He, he traveled. In fact, not long after they delivered these letters, he ends up going back and meeting him on his travels. So Paul thought very highly of Tychicus, and that's kind of to be noted also. There's many people involved in ministry, not many we hear of. If we were to ask, somebody ask you, what were the names of the 12 apostles? I might be able to name them all. I might be able to name half, but tell me about them. We don't know that much about many of them. And just as we go through the Bible, um, there's a reference to the Holy Spirit as the unnamed servant. There's people behind the scenes just doing something quietly without wanting notice, and there's something highly respected for that. And uh, this guy, you don't hear all that much. You hear of him traveling with Paul a few times, but when he does use him, he uses him for something that's very important and uh, that, that's dear to his heart. And he, and he loved these people. And uh, so Epaphras brought a good report of a healthy church to Paul. A lot of what he is saying is, I heard a lot of good things about you. And I think that's relevant as we'll get into this too. Um, But he also heard of evil doctrine that was trying to influence the church in a negative way. So I don't know if this is correction as much as it is um, instruction. Because the people were doing well and he didn't want them to fall into bad teaching. Um, It's obviously correction for the people bringing those. Um, but it's not, it's not wrong if you hear bad doctrine. It's just you don't want to follow it, and you don't want to um, be influenced by it. And I had mentioned Greek speculation, Jewish legalism, Oriental mysticism, and then some say Gnosticism, but it's not like the Gnostic stuff that we read about in First John. It wasn't actually formed into that yet. It's this false sense of spiritual pride. It was the beginning of it. And the book of Ephesians has been called the epistle portraying the church of, the, of Christ, which focuses on the body, and Colossians would be called the epistle portraying the Christ of the church, which focuses on the head. So Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Coloss. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, Paul's not alone. Paul always has people around him. And it would probably be hard to be alone because I would want to be around him. I would want to learn from him. I would want to see what he has to say and what he does. Um, And some people did it for the right reason. Some people did it for the wrong reason. Some people just hated him and wanted to catch him in something. Other people wanted to hear what he had to say. He was a genius as well as a spirit-filled prophet. 
and uh, people wanted to be around him. And Timothy was there, and he always had people that he was ministering to. And again, that's important. We should be coming alongside and uh, somebody else as well as having allowing other people to come alongside you. Both are healthy for you. And usually when he says Paul an apostle, it's usually because there's something that he, he didn't always boast in, in his ministry or in his path or in his calling. Um, but sometimes there were things that had to be stated. Um, other people were calling themselves apostles that weren't. There were false prophets and false teachers. And whenever he would sometimes challenge a false teaching, he would let people know that he does have an authority. And he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus, a sent one of Jesus by the will of God. So God has a will. And, and as we'll get into it, starting down towards verse 9, what is the will of God for me? I think that's very important, and that's going to be hopefully the focus of most of this study. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, and that's not two categories of people. The church isn't split. Here's the saints, and here's the faithful. Saints are not unfaithful brethren. <laughs> I think that's like a co, two adjectives for the same people. They're saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And wouldn't that be an honor to have the Lord look at you? Well done, my good and faithful servant. People around you, if they can say nothing else, no, they're not perfect. No, they're not always nice. No, they're not the most holy person I can think of, but they're full of faith. They, they just follow Jesus and they keep going. Lord, let that be said and let that be true of us. The saints and faithful brethren in Colossae, grace to you and peace, he wishes good for them, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the only place true good can come from. Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And, and this hits me, and it's not uncommon in many of the epistles. What causes you to pray? And oftentimes when I pray, it's because I'm in trouble. So I should be praying a lot, because <laughs> I'm in trouble a lot. But we, he's not alone in prayer. I'm sure you guys haven't heard that we have a prayer meeting. I know many of you come. <laughs> it's good to pray together. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, praying always for you, praying always for you, Lord help. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. How many times we just pray for somebody when we hear that they're in trouble or that they're going through a difficulty or that they're going to have surgery or that they have COVID or that there's something difficult happened? We are in as much need, if not more, of prayer when things are going well. When you get into God's will, you're in a war. And if you're walking with God, when you know people, if you hear of ministries that are doing well, if you know of people that are out there serving, then pray for them. That's where the battle is. And I find myself often guilty of only praying when I hear something seems to be going wrong. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So Epaphras evidently had told Paul and Timothy of the Colossian believers that they were full of faith in Christ Jesus and they loved the saints. That's a good report. That's a healthy church. And why were they able to do that? Verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Because of the hope which is laid up for you, which you heard, before in the word of the truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel being heard and is there hope in it which is laid up for you in heaven the, the truth of the gospel came to them they heard this and it had an effect on them they had fruit 
which also has come to you, verse 6, as it has in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. So the, the, the truth of the gospel went out, and when they heard it, they knew of the grace of God in truth. The truth of the word is the grace of God in truth. Is God actually as good as he says that he is? And oftentimes when we hear some people mostly on the streets that are able to be bold enough sometimes more than we are and all they do is scream. They're not necessarily speaking of the grace of God in truth. Jude says, you know, on some have compassion, on others hate the garment even spotted with the flame. Everybody needs to hear something different, which is why we were exhorted this morning. God will show you in that moment what you have to say, but we, we try not to prepare ahead of time to go out because how do I know what that person needs to hear from God unless he tells me ahead of time? We don't, we don't know what people need. We, we are, as I'm um, a pastor, uh, Gallerwin was talking and they were going around a room that everyone was introducing with all of their names and doctorates and all of that and he basically said, I'm a, van, I'm a, I'm a, a, a doll, a dummy for a ventriloquist, a God, I'll just let God speak through me. You know, it's like a lowest, trying to think of something funny, but we, we really need, how do we know what to say? I don't know what I need, much less what somebody else needs. And um, just to allow him to, but they, but, he, but they need to hear it, right? It tells us how in Romans 10, right, how will they know unless they hear, and how will they hear unless someone tells them, and how will someone tell them unless they're sent? And how blessed are the feet of those. Um, so he's sending us. And when we go, people need to hear that they might know the grace of God in truth. So we can only help people hear. We can't help people to know. Um, but they can't know unless they hear. Verse 7, as you also learned from Epaphras. So Epaphras evidently, which is why we started in Acts 19, was probably there, got saved, and brought this message back to these people. And then came back and gave, visited Paul. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. He declared to Paul and Timothy the Colossians' love in the Spirit. And nothing is in here by accident. And sometimes we can say, wow, that person's loving. But what, what does it mean to love somebody? And what does it mean to love somebody in the Spirit? Is it the same thing or is it different? It's put in there for a reason. If you're not telling somebody the truth, if you're just being good, kind to somebody, and it's not leading them to the source of that, then sometimes you're actually just telling them that there's consolation some other place other than God. We need to love people in the Spirit. And First of all, it's the right thing to do, and second of all, it's much better. And it's also freeing. I don't have to muster it up. I don't have to try to become something that I'm not naturally, but God will give it to you and then it can become a joy. It's not this hard work that we have to go perform for God. Verse 9, for this reason, we also, for this reason, since they've heard of their love in the Spirit, we, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Again, they heard good things about this church, and that caused them to get on their knees and start praying. And what did they pray for? And to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding to know God's will for their life. They were fruitful, it says. They were taught. They were loving people in the spirit. But he still says, you know what? I want you to know God's will for your life in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, and we know that without faith you cannot please him, so that they might be faithful, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We, we found out you're doing well, and we fall on our knees, and we pray that you might have the knowledge of his will. So what is God's will? And I'm, hopefully that's the point 
I think God impressed on my heart for tonight to know God's will. And to know God's will is not enough. What do I mean? To know God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Sometimes I think I get on my knees and I want to know if something is right for me to do or not. And I pray, and I might get an answer, yes or no. And sometimes I think that's enough, and then I run with it. And I say, okay, well, something different happened. I need wisdom. And sometimes when I pray for wisdom, I'm actually praying that I would be able to figure it out. And I, don't, I think there's more. I think God can actually just tell you something. You don't have to be, to be intelligent enough on your own. And I, I thought of a couple examples that I just kind of wanted to, to go through that I think might help explain this. There were people that knew God's will, but they didn't follow this pattern. There wasn't enough. If I was just in my morning reading. I just finished Numbers. If you turn with me to Numbers 22. A well-known portion of Scripture. I saw two things that I hadn't seen before, even though I've read this multiple times. Is there anybody... Everybody in here read maybe multiple times the story of Balak and Balaam. Are you familiar with the uh, awesome donkey? Okay, here we go. To me, the amazing thing about the donkey isn't what he said, it's what he didn't say. I'll tell you what I would have said. Well, 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 there are some that aren't as familiar. So 22, we'll start in verse 1. Then the children of Israel, so this is, the children of Israel as they're going through the 40 years in the desert and God had said that not all of the people that were there that were a fighting age were going to go in, only Joshua and Caleb because they give a bad report. So the rest of them were going to die in the wilderness and that their kids would go in. So they're getting to the point now, they're nearing the end and uh, we read of Goliath as this big huge giant but actually in 21 he just defeated Og of Bashan, and uh, there were actually two giants here that were, according to the Psalms, larger than Goliath. This was a huge battle. Moses took them in and fought them, and uh, now they're going through. So they're at a point now, they're getting close to Joshua taking them in, God taking Moses home. It says, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho, now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. This is a man who's in the kingdom in Canaan who God is going to overthrow. And Moab was, or outside of it, Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field in Balak, the son of Zippor was the king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. So Balaam evidently was somebody that he knew he could call upon. He has a reputation. People know things about him, and he has a power. Verse 6, therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So there's this ritual, there's a prayer life, there's something going on in Balaam that people recognized, and they're like, you know what, when I come to you, I get something done that I want. Verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with a diviner's fee. So divination, there's something, sorcery, there's something spooky going on. And uh, people, and before I cast stones, sometimes I think my prayer life, I kind of get to that point where I want God to do what I want him to do. And sometimes I often sound like this. So this is as much of a rebuke to me in my prayer life sometimes God lays it out open, though, for us to see it. He left with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, 
Balaam said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you, as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. So Balaam is mentioning the Lord. And he says, yeah, I have this relationship with God. He talks to me. And if I curse somebody, they're cursed. And if I bless them, they're blessed. There was a form of spirituality here. Verse 9, then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? He doesn't say, who are you? And Balaam doesn't say, who are you? He obviously talks to God. He ends up finding out what God's will is. Here is a guy that will find out the will of God. And what does he do with it? Just knowing what God wants to do is not enough. So Balaam said to God, first of all, I'd say, you don't know who they are? The fact that <laughs> I'm like, he's being tested the whole time. Like, who do you think you're talking to? Oh, you don't know. I'll just fill you in then. And sometimes our prayer life is filling God in with details that he already knows. Well, you see, um, insanity, and it gets worse as we're about to read. So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. What is the will of God? Don't go. Don't curse the people. That's the will of God, the knowledge of God. Think back according to Colossians, to know the will of God in wisdom and spiritual understanding. 13, so Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And you can hear his heart. I want to go, but God's not letting me. He wants to go, and we'll find out why. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. No, the truth is God told him not to go. And he's trying to, if he was faithful, he's just being obedient. But that's not how it sounded, and they don't understand it. 15, then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly and will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me. 18, then Balaam answered, no, I already know the will of God. I'm not going to. No, it's not what he said. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the words of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Okay, I'm going to go talk to him again. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So he says, if the men come. And this, I, I don't understand this fully. But verse 21 doesn't say, then the men came. So he listened. I don't know if they came. It says, Balaam rose in the morning, sandaled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So it doesn't, he might have just said, God might have made it so that they got, the men wouldn't come. He's, he's checking his heart. But we do know in verse 22, then God's anger was aroused because he went. He wasn't supposed to go. He told him not to go. How that whole thing came, and, and to me that could be trivial, but it's huge importance because we want to know what the will of God is for our lives. And sometimes when we ask, we're asking in such a way that the answer can be difficult. I'm, you know, I, I might have put a, I might say, God, if you want me to do this, then do this. Well, God's like, well, I want you to do it, but I can't do that because that would hinder something else. And sometimes we don't always hear correctly. But he makes it very simple eventually. If you want to know his will, God's not sitting there hoping you get it right. And if you get it wrong, he's like, oh, no, now I got to discipline him and punish him. And now I have to do this. I have to let him into that ministry I didn't want to. He just wants to know if your heart's right. And if you, if you end up not hearing correctly and he corrects you, Praise the Lord, and he loves it. He just wants to be with you. He's not, he's not a tyrant. He's not sitting up there saying, you better get this. He's not a taskmaster. He's the opposite of that, as we learned, as they learned, as they left Egypt. So his heart was wrong in it, and, we're, and we'll, he tells us why. Then God was aroused, anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So here he is, thinks he has permission from God to go somewhere, 
He's only going because he wants to, and God already told him not to. And now all of a sudden, there's something in the way hindering his path. He's got a way, the people of the way. He's got a way. He's going in a way, and the way seems hard, and he doesn't know why. I think he's given an opportunity to, to walk in faith in which he fails. And it's not just, you talk about an obstacle, the angel of the Lord was standing in the way. <laughs> Lord, come stand in my way if I'm going the wrong direction. But don't, not as an adversary. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. 23, now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Sometimes we get mad at the things that God uses to talk to us when it's actually the Lord himself. Here he is getting mad at, at God's instrument. We don't always see things clearly. But we should be open to the fact that we may not see things clearly. <laughs> Maybe it's me. Before we get mad at other people. 24, and the, then the angel of the Lord, and again, there's the, an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. And most of the time when we read the angel of the Lord, we think of it as a Christophany, an actual appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate. So we believe, I believe this was Jesus himself standing there. Jesus was standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Just picture that when you're going the wrong way sometime. <laughs> that doesn't get your attention. Twenty-four. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. 28, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, so before we go any farther, just to think this through, because I like to think, first of all, it's a talking donkey. Is he allowing the donkey to say what it wants? Do donkeys normally just think, and God allowed the donkey, okay, tell him what's on your mind, it's your turn, he hit you, get to say something back. Or is this God speaking through the donkey? Who's thinking these thoughts that are coming out of its mouth? I'm pretty sure that it's God talking. If the donkey's talking, it's probably God talking through him. Sometimes we're not in a place where we're able to hear or recognize the voice of the Lord, and he'll come and get his attention. He'll, he'll, he wants you to know his word. He wants you to know his will. This is about as extreme as it gets, but he can do it. He can do whatever he wants. He opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Have you ever had an unbelieving co-worker? I'll just raise my hand right now. So I thought Christians were supposed to be more loving than that. You ever been rebuked by an unsafe person? It hurts, but it's an opportunity. Yes, I am supposed to be more unloving. Yes, I have no reason if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you don't have the ability to do that. I don't have an excuse. You, you, other people are just living out according to their nature. I'm, living, I'm not living out according to a nature that I could be living out in. Shame on me. And it's a good opportunity to then reveal the grace and love of God and say, it's not about my goodness, but you're right. I'm going to repent, and I'm sorry. You ever been out talking to somebody and... A lot of people that witness have all the answers or think they have to have all the answers. And next thing you know, when you come across somebody, they have these rote questions that they automatically ask because they think they're unanswerable. And they want to know what you're going to say to this because they just, if they can find something that you can't answer, then they feel better about you not knowing something. So if you don't know one thing, they don't have to believe any of what you said, even though that's not true in any other aspect of their life. And I find that sometimes you're just real. If they say something and you don't know, if you tell somebody that you're trying to tell something about and you don't come across as the I know everything guy, and you just say, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, sometimes walls break down. And more often than not, they'll just start asking you sincere questions. Because, okay, well, if you don't know that, maybe you do know something. 
Like, well, I might know something. So the, the, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what are you doing? Verse 29, and Balaam said to the donkey, because you have, Balaam said to the donkey, he's talking back to his donkey. <laughs> like, and again, sin makes you stupid. Sometimes people are just insane. And I've seen people in such a rage that they're not, if you were in another earlier today looking at yourself, you'd be thinking, what's wrong with me? And sometimes people are just out of the ordinary. But he's also not unused to spiritual things. He has a diviner's fee that people pay him for. He talks to a spirit that he can't see. He's used to unusual things. Just think about Pharaoh. When they came out of Egypt, and uh, when Moses came up to him, their sorcerers were able to make frogs and blood and supernatural things happen, both for God and not a God. Who knows what this guy ended up getting into with his divination? But evidently, he wasn't freaked out by a donkey talking. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, abused you, he was, you hit your foot a little bit. <laughs> I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. And again, as I said earlier, if I was the donkey, I'd be like, hey, there's one, go get it. <laughs> that guy right there is holding a sword, see if you can get his sword. Because <laughs> I would have been upset. But this is God talking through him. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. Now he sees it's God actually the one in the way preventing him from doing something that he thought he was supposed to do or wanted to do with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat in his face. And I bet you that didn't take very long to happen. God standing there, Jesus standing there, he's going to come back with his sword. We already read that in Revelation. I don't know. And again, you've probably met people. You might have been that person. I was. When I see God, I'm going to ask him. When you see God, you're going to fall on your face. I don't know what you think you're going to do when you see God. Can you imagine the fear of somebody that doesn't know him, that's going to be standing before him, when everything they've ever done wrong all of a sudden hits them, when every accusation falsely against God that they've said, when all of a sudden they realize the truth of all eternity. Even if you wanted to hit him, you're in heaven, you're in a, a different body. You, is there ground under you? Can you even run away? What do you do? You're hopeless. It's, it's surreal. There, he falls on his face, which will happen to... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You're going to fall flat on your face. 32, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you strunk your donkey these three times? I don't think he's necessarily saying, that poor donkey got hit. He's like, why are you angry that your way is being inhibited right now? You're doing the wrong thing. Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The way you're going is perverse. Paul tells us in Colossians to not only that people pray that he would know their will, but they would walk worthy. He's walking the wrong direction. 33, the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. No, but you did know that you weren't supposed to go. I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, I didn't know you actually meant it when you said that. I didn't know you were going to deny me money, because that's what I want, which we'll get there. But he does say, now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. If it is evil in your eyes, okay, I see your sword, I see you're serious, now I'm scared, I'll go back. <laughs> now that you got my attention, it doesn't have to get there. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with them, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. So go with them, but only the word that I speak to you, 
that you will speak. Don't say anything more than what I'm telling you to say. So we know the story. Is that what he does? Unfortunately not. It's not all that he says. The rest of the story, chapter 23. He goes out there, he prophesies, and he blesses them. Then he goes a second time, and he blesses them. He goes a third time, and he blesses them. And it seems like that's the end of the story. And next thing you know, you end up getting to chapter 25, and it says that Israel was there, and the Midianite woman came into the camp, and the men ended up committing sexual sin with them, and a plague came and started spreading among the people until Phinehas came in with a spear and stuck one of the people through as they were committing fornication into the ground, and it stayed the plague. And that happened right afterwards. And then when we get to chapter 25, verse 16, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes or their divinations. Something evil scheme was going on behind the scenes here, by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. So one of the Midianite leaders sent his daughter in, and that was the cause of this plague that started to come. And thinking about divinations and all that, it kind of got me curious to what that meant. And uh, something I hadn't seen before, looking up that word, if you go back to chapter 23, when Balaam prophesied for the third time, the end of the chapter, verse 27, so Numbers 23, verse 27, then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I will take you to another place, this is the third time, perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So here is this guy hearing from the Lord who's full of sin, trying to represent God using his name, going opposed to God's will to an unbeliever that wants God's people killed. It's like a bad movie. 28, so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. This he's done at every place. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. 24, verse 1. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but to set his face toward the wilderness. Every other time that he went, here is a guy using sorcery. He is sitting there trying to use some kind of form of divination. Even though he heard God, he has this hocus-pocus stuff that he's doing, trying to harm and put a curse on people. And it ended up not working. So this time he just stands there and uh, God speaks through him anyways to the people and he ends up blessing them. And hopefully it, that would have been the end of the story, except chapter 31. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites, for the children of Israel afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war, and let them go against the Midianites, and take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war. 1,000 from each tribe he sent to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand, and they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with a sword. Balaam hung out and was hanging and stayed with these kings of Midian. Verse 9, And the children of Israel took the woman of Midian captive with their little ones, 
So they take the girls and they keep them and took spoil of all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire the cities where they dwelt and all their forts, and they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Verse 12. Then when they brought the captives, the booty and the spoil to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, 13. And Moses, Eliezer the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, who had come from battle. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam came. God told him not to go. He went anyways. God was angry with him. He knew the will of God was to stay, but he didn't listen to it. Then he knew God wanted to bless them. And God's like, fine, go, but don't say anything other than what I tell you. And while he was there, and while God had his attention, he blessed the people but not cursed them. But then he eventually ended up going to Midian and said, you know what? God's blessed them. I can't curse them, but you can cause them to sin because God has said if you, if you were to walk in blessings, you'll be blessed, and if you walk in curses, you'll be cursed. And there's a way that you can get God to curse them, cause them to sin. And he ends up telling them to be carnal and to give in to lustful enticement, and then that will bring a plague upon them. So here's a guy that knew God's will, but he didn't have it with spiritual understanding, and he didn't walk according to the way that he wanted to. And just a better example, Pastor Richard going through um, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He knew that God's plan was right there in front of him, but he had no idea what it meant. Daniel, eventually, by prayer, supplication, sought, sought the Lord, got the exact same vision, and it meant something to him. He had spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the wisdom wasn't that he was smarter. You're not going to look at that and figure it all out and say, oh, okay. But we have that vision now, and now it makes sense to us. God explained things, something to him. And what Daniel did with it is that it gave him faith, and he walked uprightly. Two people each can know the will of God. and One might understand it, one might not. One will walk in it. They saw the same thing. It understood what it meant. Daniel walked in the truth of it, and he was strengthened for patience with joy. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't there yet. God was dealing with his pride. Same message, different results, different hearts. God wanted him to know. He gave it to him first, not Daniel. He didn't give it to Daniel tell him to go tell him. And most people, some people believe, I believe, Nebuchadnezzar, it says that God gave him a new heart. He might have got saved. He was in a process of something. And not only... The process wasn't just that he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see what was going to happen, but he also, what did he do at that very same time? He just undermined all of his religion. Your religion doesn't work, but I know there is one that does work. God informs us of things. Next question is, what are we going to do with it, and what does it mean to us? So back in Colossians, For this reason, verse 9, if nothing else, just read 9 to 11, 9 to 11, 9 to 11. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. It's not just enough to know it. You need to know it in wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then you also have to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him and being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, it all has to be about him. In verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. I like reading that part fast because I don't like reading it slow. But I'll read it slow because I'm here because I had to. Strengthened with all might, power, right? dunamis, the Holy Spirit, 
according to his glorious power. God has power and it's glorious. Four, why do we get that patient? Why do we get that all patience and long-suffering with joy? You need power to painfully, longfully endure suffering with joy. You cannot endure long-suffering with joy. In fact, we went over this morning, Acts, and he says that you shall be, you will be endued with power on high, and you shall be my witnesses. I like the word witness better than martus, which is the Greek word it actually comes from, which is where we get the word martyr. I'm going to give you power to be a martyr, one, to die to self, and two, to just not care what happens to you anymore. What does it matter what happens to you? Do we want to know when we're going to die? Just live for Jesus today and you'll live for him forever. Don't let that threat hinder you from, from something. What, if, if the thing ahead of us is the best thing that's going to happen to us, we're only going up and forward. We don't have to let little trivial things bother us. And sometimes when we go through things, it's going to be hard. And it's and it, hard meaning difficult. And we're going to need patience and we're going to suffer but it's not bad, it's just uncomfortable, and we can do it with joy if we have his glorious power and we're strengthened with all might. If you want to know God's will for your life, first of all, it means you're going to be entering into a battle. There's going to be warfare. It's going to, you're going to need to be encouraged to walk worthy because the temptation is going to be to not, and then you're going to need strength because it's going to be hard. And it doesn't mean it's not worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. So what is pain? other than uncomfortable in my enemy. <laughs> it's, it, it, it doesn't have to be the thing that stops us. We can have joy through that whole thing. And I just thought of another example real quick just before we get into um, 12 to 14 in which we'll take communion. So let's just say God tells you, good news, you're getting married. And I know some people in here are looking forward to that. Is that enough information? Is, is it good or not good? If God wants you to be married, that's good news, Right? Okay, well, our first, my first question would be, okay, to who? Because why? Because that's what affects me. Who am I going to be married to? I want to know what's personal. But what's, it's not just who we married. What about when are we going to get married? And more importantly, how do we walk in it? If I'm going to get married, how am I, how, what does it mean to be a husband? Should, shouldn't that be the question if you read through this? The good news is the, the knowledge of getting Married is good, but as importantly, Lord, how am I to be married? We need to know his will and to walk fully pleasing in it. God tells you you're going to be married. That's knowledge. I need to know wisdom and spiritual understanding through it. I need to walk worthy in that, fully pleasing him. I need to be fruitful in every good work and increasing in my knowledge of God, and I need to be strengthened for patience so that I can suffer along with joy. That's part of marriage too, part of relationships in general with people. That's where a lot of people fall away. I talk to a lot of people that aren't saved and they try to justify why they're getting divorced. Well, I just don't love her anymore. And as you talk to them, the truth comes out is you really never loved them. Again, they didn't love in the spirit. You loved yourself and they made you happy and now they don't make you happy. So you still love you. You loved you before and you love you now. Marriage should be about God and about the other person. Love God, love others. If God tells you you're going to get married, great. But also ask him, okay, Lord, how am I to be married? What is a marriage supposed to look like? Unfortunately, we're going to have a marriage conference. If you have those questions, <laughs> Come. Lord help. Solomon, 1 Kings 3. I'm just going to read a few verses. You don't have to turn there. Solomon knew, he had the knowledge of information that he was going to be a king. David had been praying. It says now, let's skip verse 5. Chapter 3, 1 Kings 3, 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart. You have continued with his great kindness for him, and you have given him a son 
to sit on his throne as it is this day, as it is this day. He knew he was going to be king. It's, he knew the will of God. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know, and I underlined how, to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. If he had only asked how to deal with women, how to be married as well as he did how to be a king, and he kept asking these questions about every aspect of his life. This is the right thing to ask when you find out God's will for your life. Don't just ask him what is your will for his life. Ask him how. How do I walk worthy? How do I do this? I need spiritual wisdom and understanding. I need you to explain it to me. So, do you guys have a song for communion? If you want to come up. I'll just read 12 to 14 and then we'll sing a song. And after, if you guys want to come up and grab the tokens. It says in Colossians 1.12, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son in his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Thank you, Jesus. In whom we have redemption, we've been bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And as we look at these tokens, we're reminded, we remember Jesus hanging on the cross, the price that God said would be suitable to redeem mankind, a human soul for all eternity. And by faith in what this represents, Lord, we just take this way for remembering the sacrifice of your son. Let's partake. And as we look at the blood, the token, this remembrance of his blood spilt, the life is in the blood, he tells us, and he gave his life, the truest act, the greatest act of love the world's ever seen. We remember his sacrifice for us on the cross. Let's partake. Just speaking of redemption, I'm reminded, and I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. <clears throat> now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, that's not enough, made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We're going to rule and reign with God. Remember who your Savior is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's in control of everything, and he has a will for your life and he's able to make it come to pass. Just don't strive with your maker. And when we're being corrected, Lord, when we're being corrected, just give us a heart that's willing to be supple, to be turned. Help us to see things with spiritual understanding and wisdom, to know the things that are 
of the enemy and that are thwarting us away from you and your will and the things that are leading us away from our own evil intentions and towards you. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment that we might walk in the way. And when we fail, thank you for a Savior, Lord. Thank you for grace. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for being a good dad. And fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be living lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.